0: Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kavitek.
1: I'm coming to you with my uh, little helper. Little helper. Wow. That's, Sean Carnegie. borderline insulting. That's borderline insulting. Hi, I'm Sean and I'm, I'm one of the associates here looking for work. Um, and today we have a bunch of interesting cases to talk about. And uh, Brian, why don't you tell them what we normally do on this show? Well,
0: normally what we do is we talk about recent cases that have come down from the Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit... Uh, the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, they always have some impact on your practice. If you're a plaintiff's lawyer, it's like law school in 20 minutes. Right. That's going to be my new title for this is law school in 20 minutes.
1: But we still don't have friends.
0: And we still don't have friends like we didn't in law school. You That's mean? right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. That's what I We're going
0: to be talking about cases today that cite cases as precedent that came out after I graduated from law school so make see how that makes which me is fear? a lot
1: it's the entire like body of law almost well because you know anything after Marbury versus Madison probably. Okay. Okay. Like so I'm a vampire. So All today right. we got Go four ahead. cases. It'll be a shorter episode. We got four cases. One of them is going to be about evident partiality of an arbitrator and the need for an arbitrator to disclose his ownership interest in, in a company like Jams, for example. Uh, then we're going to talk about standing and concrete injury in fact, uh, and you know the cases kind of in the wake of uh, the Spokio ruling, which we've talked about before on this podcast. Then we're going to talk about the exhaustion of administrative remedies and how that doctrine works. And what it does and does not waive, and lastly, we're going to talk about uh, one of our recurring themes here: arbitration and uh, procedural and substantive unconscionability. And that's a case that discusses some other cases we've talked about on this podcast and candor in the courts. That's right. Yeah, interesting, interesting case.
0: All right. So, welcome to law school. That's our. That's my new title for this: is twenty minute law school. Right.
1: Don't don't tune out. You know, most some people might get turned off. by I like law school. You did. Oh, yes, despite your of lack of friends. I loved law yeah, school. yeah, despite your lack of friends. The books were my friends. Right. <laughs> that's that's weird. That's weird, but right, that our first makes case. a lot of sense. Yeah. Our first case is Monster Energy versus City Beverages. Uh this is a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case. It originated, I believe, um in uh, the where did it Out of the Central, Central District of Central California? District, right
0: here. Yeah. Yeah, right here. Um involves a little organization known as
1: JAMS. Have you heard of them? I've heard of them. Yeah, I've heard of them.
0: And it involves, importantly, it involves um, an issue about the disclosure requirements of an arbitrator. So we're seeing more of this today, which is a bad result after an arbitration and somebody comes out and attacks the arbitration based upon the failure to disclose the arbitrator.
1: Yeah, so it, it involves a dispute between Monster Energy and someone with whom they've had a uh, an exclusive di- distribution agreement for a particular region of the country, and um, that's a company called Olympic Eagle. Even though the defendant in the case is City Beverages, so Monster and Olympic Eagle get into this dispute because Monster terminated their contract, and Olympic Eagle um, was uh, you know seeks to have a determination as to whether the agreement was improperly terminated, and in order to do so, I, I presume that they have an arbitration agreement. Um, there is an arbitration that's initiated with JAMS, and and all kidding aside, in case someone does know, JAMS is a arbitration and mediation center that's that's I believe nationwide, um, has many branches. Uh, they're one of the probably prom- the first. Probably the first. Probably the first I didn't know
0: organization that. that ever started with arbitrations and mediations, mostly mediations. And it started in the late 80s before this was even a concept. And uh, I'm not giving a commercial for jams. I'm just giving background. They're huge. And what the issue that came up in this case starts with the fact that they went to arbitration and Olympic Eagle came in second in the arbitration.
1: Which means they, they, they got uh, silver medal?
0: They, they they got they got uh, steak knives and sent home.
1: Okay. Yeah, so they, so lost. they lost.
0: Right. And so they attacked the arbitration agreement on a very interesting issue, which is now law and not the history. arbitration law. agreement,
1: the arbitration award. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um and they they went they said the arbitrator who was selected disclosed the fact that he, like all arbitrators, um has a practice associated with jams and jam neutrals have an economic interest in the overall financial success of jams. But the arbitrator didn't go on to disclose that he was a part owner, as many, many of these retired judges
1: are. Right. And the arbitrator also didn't disclose that uh, he was – he had arbitrated many, I think, 97 other disputes. Not uh, him. Not him. That's an important fact. Jams. Jams. Jams had administered 97 other arbitrations in two years for monster in the course of two years.
0: And this is what we talk about, about being frequent flyers or having a business relationship. And the, the question here was, hey, the guy's an owner. And it doesn't matter how many arbitrations he personally had, but it's how many arbitrations Jams had had, so as to show that there's a, a income stream that's coming from
1: these arbitrations, which is indicative potentially of possible bias. So ultimately, what happens is that the um, the the panel here vacates the arbitration award and also vacates the district court's award of post arbitration fees to Monster. Um, But ultimately, the court here isn't ruling that it's improper for an arbitrator to have an ownership interest in jams. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, It's not saying that it raises uh, an indicia of partiality. It's just saying that it's— it must be disclosed. There's it must be the, disclosed. The to California the
0: Supreme Court, and I believe even the United States Supreme Court has endorsed the fact that arbitrators have to disclose their business relationships so that parties to an arbitration will know fully and fairly what they're dealing with because of this frequent flyer problem. Yeah. And that because of that, the arbitration award had to be set aside. And because of that, there is now a rule that uh, the Jams has to disclose if the arbitrator has an ownership interest. Has to disclose any arbitrations yeah. or any business relations that the arbitration service has with the parties.
1: Yeah, and the inquiry that the court does here is twofold, and it's uh, and you need both of these. So the first question is whether the arbitrator, uh, uh, whether the arbitrator's ownership interest in Jams was sufficiently substantial. And whether Jams and Monster were engaged in non-trivial business dealings. And if the answer to both of those is yes, then the relationship requires disclosure and, in this situation, supports vacating of the arbitration. Now,
0: remarkably, there was a dissent. So this was a 3-2 decision out of the Ninth Circuit. And the dissent in this case was, okay. I get it. Monster's a repeat customer. But I still disagree that they had to disclose that issue, because the financial interest in Jam's success shouldn't have anything to do with a requirement to um, to disclose, which kind of troubles me. I mean, I think the decision itself is a good decision, but then the dissent goes on to say the following quote: "To the extent that the private arbitration system favors repeat players, I think it is unfortunate that so many parties forego the protections of Article Three and turn to arbitration instead." What's Article
1: Three? Um I don't uh, I don't know. Jesus. Standing. The courts. Oh, the, the courts. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I wasn't so, paying attention there. So the dissent, admittedly. the first thing the dissent yeah. says
0: is I agree that there's um that private arbitration can lead to favoring repeat players and it's unfortunate that people use arbitration when the courts are available. But then he goes on to say, but it's okay in this situation I don't think you have to disclose this kind of information.
1: Well, we appreciate the sentiment, but uh, the his position and the dissent we don't agree with uh, respectfully.
0: Well, I, I agree with the first two sentences of right. it. Right, right. It's wrong. It's fundamentally yeah. wrong. All these cases – and I think that one thing we're seeing, and we're going to see this at least in one other case we're going to talk about we today, aren't. which is this trend in the courts to look for ways to set aside arbitration um, because, arbitra- because they're starting to recognize that arbitration is just really undermining – Um, The right to a jury trial in this country.
1: Okay, moving on to our next case, Nayab versus Capital One Bank. This is also a Ninth Circuit case uh, that originated, I believe, in the Central um, District—no, Southern District of California. And this case involves the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and it's— there's some interesting things about the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and we'll get to that, but it's ultimately a case about standing, Article Three standing, whether or not someone has concrete injury, in fact, uh, to bring a claim, and that goes into a discussion about Spokio. But first, let's talk about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So the Fair Credit Reporting Act is a federal law that, uh, in a nutshell, precludes um, certain forms of access to uh, one's uh, credit report. And it lays out circumstances where access to one's credit report is allowed. And it really precludes a third party with whom the consumer is not transacting from getting a credit report in two, uh, with the exception of two circumstances, which I found kind of strange. I didn't know about this before. But those two circumstances where a third party... With whom the consumer has no transaction or no relationship, no authorization. Uh, there, those two tra- those two circumstances are for purposes of direct marketing and for pre screening, which is weird because it kind of it allows these agencies to get access and uh, so without your, any,
0: any recourse. What's your public service announcement? So my day? public
1: service announcement today, and because the, the opinion says this, that consumers may elect to have their name excluded from the list provided by the reporting agency to these third parties. So your public service announcement is call the three big uh consumer reporting agent credit reporting agencies and tell them you want to get on that list. You don't want to opt in. You want to opt out actually of pre-screening and direct marketing office. Yeah,
0: I can imagine how that call will go by the way, Sean. It's something like this. Press three yeah, if you'd yeah. like to speak to a live yeah, person.
1: Yeah. yeah. And there's no one available. So that is how it would probably go. The
0: next operator will be available for you in 27
1: minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, th- th- there's these exceptions. But anyway, over here, this person has a claim against Capital One Bank, presumably because Capital One Bank um, obtained their credit report without falling into these exceptions and without right. the consumer giving authorization. So, what's Spokio? Spokio is a case that really laid out the standard for um, standing under Article 3. And it held that in order to have standing, you need these three elements you need injury, in fact. You need uh, that injury to be fairly traceable to the challenged conduct, and you need uh, that injury to be likely to be addressed by a favorable judicial decision. Now, one of the things that Spokio held is that merely because
0: a statute may apply uh, some kind of statutory remedy, you know like a five hundred dollar yes. minimum damage or something like that, that in and of itself doesn 't create an injury in fact,
1: right, and instead you need actually to meet these three three prongs so that 's right and and more specifically about the the contentious prong is the first one suffered an injury in fact, and the uh, further kind of analysis of that is you need concrete and particular particularized right. And actual or imminent, not conjecture or a hypothetical injury. So you need a specific injury, you need a concrete injury that must be de facto and it must actually exist. And concrete, but however, and, and the court lays this out, and this is from Spokio concrete does not, is not necessarily synonymous with tangible. You don't need someone to have been physically hurt or lost money. Um, so so this case kind of dives into what that means, and it goes into a number of factors, and it says the violation of the FCRA without someone authorizing access to their credit report, it, it, it qualifies as a concrete and particularized injury.
0: Yeah, I like this decision because the court looks at it and it says the right to privacy in one's consumer credit report confers standing.
1: Yeah. So
0: that part of it's good.
1: Yeah, and it even says there's cases out there that specifically have addressed um, violations of the SCRA that have found that, um, you know, obtaining someone's credit report it violates a substantive pr- provision of the SCRA. So like as Brian said, just because you violate the law doesn't mean you have standing, but if it violates a substantive provision of the law, like the kind of heart of the law, the purpose of that law, then you have a better argument they, there for They standing. go on to
0: actually make an affirmative statement to say that when a third party obtains a credit report without a purpose authorized by statute, regardless of whether the credit report is actually published or otherwise used. They're standing, great rule, and then the second part of the case was about the pleading standard.
1: Right, it's about uh, because the defendant here is arguing that the plaintiff failed to state a claim. You know, not not, not pleading enough, and and that standard comes from these uh, a series of two cases that came out close in time prior to two thousand and ten, Iqbal and Tombly. and this is unique. This is news for Brian because. You no know, no surprise he went to law school long before these cases came out in the late 2000s um and uh, it- they they lay out the standard here for pleading, and it's not a super high standard, and they effectively – the court here says, look, just because the plaintiff didn't sit there and list or, or negate every possibly authorized purpose for which the defendant was going to use the credit report doesn't mean that they failed to state a claim. For them to say that, look, there's the FCRA. They violated the FCRA by taking my information that I didn't authorize them to take – that's enough. That meets the standard, and,
0: and the burden shifts to the defendant. It's the defendant's that's right. obligation to that's then right. establish that there was an exception. And they said it's enough. And even though they didn't plead it specifically, you can read between the lines, and that's what they're saying. And they say that's sufficient. That's enough. Great decision. And another case with a dissent. Yep. So in this dissent, the the uh, circuit judge comes out and says, "Look, I agree completely that the plaintiff has standing." Okay, good. Yeah, and then goes on to say. But didn't meet the pleading standards, didn't right. meet Twomley and Iqbal, right. which, by the way, I think those cases, when they first came out, because I do remember when they came out. I know, out, I
1: was kidding, yeah.
0: They Those cases are um, were you know heralded as this horrible new pleading standard, and I think things have kind of rolled back from there. But nev- nevertheless, this particular judge jumps on it, and what blows me away about this judge is, at the end, he says... Um, Look, you can't place the burden on the defendant to establish your pleading obligation, okay, yeah. and I would uh, affirm the, the district court's finding that even though you have standing, you didn't properly plead it, and you can't go back and re it or file an amended complaint. So right. pretty harsh decision, um, not the law, but that's the dissent, so keep your eye out on that. We'll go to our next case now, which is Stafford versus attending staff association of Los Angeles County USC Medical Center, yeah. second district court of appeal case. This is for a um, a doctor who's an anesthesiologist who I guess lost his privileges at the hospital, and they don't say specifically why, but they say that at the time the relative, relevant events took place when he lost his privileges, he was over 80 years old, And had had staff privileges at the medical center for at least 30 years. How do you feel, Sean, about an 80-plus-year-old passing anesthesiology to you when you're being rushed into the emergency room. Look,
1: I'm not an ageist. I think doctors probably get wiser with age, but the anesthesiologist kind of, he's the one that's putting you on the brink of death and kind of bringing you back at the end of the procedure. I don't know how how I feel about that. But that's not to say that that's why his privileges were, were suspended. And not to say that he doesn't have a legitimate claim. Right. So we want to make that perfectly clear. But I did know that what actually looks like.
0: years old. Yeah, that
1: is, that is noteworthy. But what it looks like happened is that in 2013... I'm the one who wants to fall asleep. Not not my doctor. Right. Yeah, exactly. You want him to put you to sleep. You don't want him to fall right. asleep while he's doing that. But in 2013, a female patient filed a written complaint that the uh, doctor here acted inappropriately and made her feel uncomfortable during the an examination. And then after that is when uh, the county... Um, or whatever the hospital entity is called, uh, suspended his privilege. So
0: this is a very unusual procedural um, situation here. And I think one of the reasons I brought it up is because we do in our practices come in contact with – administrative remedies and the exhaustion administrative remedies. I'm not sure this particular issue comes up in folks' practices very often.
1: Not specifically, but I think the principle in general is something important to note here. So what happens here is the doctor's obviously not happy about having his privileges suspended, so he starts the appeal process, which is um, the administrative remedy portion of this. He starts the appeal process where he seeks an appeal of his suspension. While that appeal is pending... Um, He files civil suit. While the appeal has has not been resolved yet, he files civil suit. Uh, One of the defendants he names uh, files an anti-slap motion, which is a special motion to strike. Um, That's an interesting issue too. But anyway, he dismisses his, his civil action at some point. Thereafter, the hospital entity or, or, or whatever the, the um, county USC argues – well, he waived his, his his right to the appeal process because he tries to go back to his administrative appeal. They argue he waived his appellate process or whatever recourse he has under that by filing civil suit. So that's what the issue really is So here, So here is. he
0: no longer has administrative remedy at this point, and he files what's called a writ of mandate – Uh, Under the code, which is how you compel a public entity to perform a legal and usually ministerial duty of some kind, and it's what you need to bring um, sometimes to compel them to do their job or to do do something. So he brings this action, and their argument is – too bad, too sad, you filed a civil action, now you've lost your right to use your administrative remedies.
1: Right. And the trial court, and the, the appellate court agrees with the trial court on this, the trial court says, um, no, that's not how it works. The require, the failure to exhaust administrative remedies is a defense to a civil suit that the defendant here could have argued, but it is not... Um, It does not construe waiver over here. They specifically say that the court concluded that this requirement provided defense to a premature legal action, but it did not mean that a civil suit, quote, acts as a forfeiture of a pending administrative appeal. So just because you file civil suit, it might be improper, and they'd have a good argument um, in defending or getting the civil suit thrown out, um, but it does not mean that you've abandoned or you forfeited the administration.
0: The court actually field. goes further than that, and they say the decision to pursue a judicial remedy before completing the administrative process, process while unwise does not forfeit the right. So right. interesting procedural Um process here, something that people need to know about because, you know, we get into different areas we're not that familiar with and sometimes we get um, sidetracked. All right. So, uh, anything more you want to add to that case, Sean? Nothing more. To cut Nothing short. more. I know nope. you were doing a good nope. job. Nothing more. Now we're going to talk about Donald Davis versus TWC Dealer Group Inc. TWC Dealer is apparently a auto dealership, a
1: Toyota dealership in Walnut Creek. And this case is not to be confused with another arbitration case we talked about that involved a car dealership. Just but a couple very of episodes ago, cl- but
0: that's a but, California Supreme Court case, right? That's right, and that's called Co. K-H-O. And that case um, came down just before this, and it's very similar and very important, though, to this decision. So I think there's two reasons to bring this up. One is, again, it's an arbitration issue, and how do you set aside arbitration agreements, procedural and substantive uh, uh, unconscionability? And the second is the lack of candor. So we're going to talk about both of those in this case. But the basic facts of the case before we get into this— are that it looks like a family, African American family was hired to run the finance department, and they call it the special finance department at this dealership, and that um they they apparently had employment issues, I don't know if it was race related or not, but they had employment issues and they filed a lawsuit against the dealership all three of them, and the dealership compelled arbitration based upon three separate arbitration agreements or employment agreements that that each one of these employees signed.
1: Yeah, it, it, this is a perfect example of both substantive and unconscionable uh, uh, substantive and procedural unconscionability of an arbitration Which agreement. Which you need both? Yeah, you you do need both and the and the case does uh, the opinion does a good job of laying out the the analysis.
0: Now, one thing that's interesting the court said here is they said that that you have to have both procedural and substantive unconscionability. But if you have more substantive uh, oppressiveness or unconscionability, then the procedural unconscionability can be less, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I guess it's you look at them kind of on balance, and and they don't both need to to be totally met, but um, you got to look at both of them. And over here, it's wild. And one another thing to note, by the way, is that the court of appeal says at no place in its seventy-two pages of briefing does. The car dealership here, quote, the entirety of any, let alone all, of the agreements which they're seeking to rely on. So if
0: I'm reading the opinion, that's the first warning sign that I'm going to lose, right?
1: that's like in the second paragraph of the factual background.
0: So they get into procedural unconscionability, and they look at the fact that one of the things the car dealer says is that any procedural unconscionability here is minute. Right. And the court says... We're dumbfounded by the characterization of it being minute because, first of all, um, just the fact that it's a contract of adhesion is a warning sign that it's procedurally
1: – Right. And what does that mean, Brian? Is there a more colloquial phrase for contract of adhesion? Take it or leave it, Take baby. Take it or leave it. That's, Take that, it or leave it. It. That's what this Take was. Take it or leave it, baby. That's what this and was. And then
0: they say, were that not enough, the Supreme Court opinion in Co., the case we talked about a few moments ago, was like – and they used the word devastating on the right. issue devastating right. on the issue
1: but but isn't it true that when uh, the attorney appeared for the oral argument on this he didn't even know what co was wait that's coming okay did i don't ruin the surprise don't ruin the surprise. I ruined the surprise spoiler alert you're ruining it spoiler for people. alert! i'm sorry this is how we lose listeners. This, right? And People for God's sake, we can't afford to lose yeah, we listeners. Can't, we can't. Well, can you really lose what you don't have?
0: Let's get to substantive okay. unconscionability. So what's substantive unconscionability?
1: That's when the terms of the agreement are bad. That's that's my definition of substantive unconscionability. When and, they're bad, when they're not fair.
0: And so the uh, the lawyers in this case for the car dealership say there's really just a low degree of substantive unconscionability, it's not really here. And the court says there's more than a low degree. And four examples should illustrate. So, should we go through those four sure, examples? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the first example was using Co's words. Um, the the agreement itself had fine print terms that were so small as to challenge the limits of legibility. Yeah. Right. Second, there's lack of mutuality, including the fact, and I love this: the fact that the people, the employees had to sign the agreement, but the, either there was no place for the car dealership to sign or they just didn't sign.
1: Which, which I would argue does not mean
0: there's an agreement. Right. Right. And then third, the mere existence of three separate agreements. Three separate agreements which in and of itself looks procedurally unconscionable because you have to look at all the agreements. But then there was internal confusion among the agreements. For example, some prohibited um, – Uh, exercising certain rights. Others prohibited uh, class actions or participating in class actions. Some allowed the parties to bring injunctions. Um. So there's there's that, and then yeah. The there's like
1: inconsistencies f- between the agreements. Then that in and of itself is uh, substantively unconscionable. And the final one is that it released. Uh, my summary of this final one is that it released too many things, which may include paga, which you know that you can't release your ability to bring a paga claim, and that comes from the seminal case is Kanyan. Um, so then we
0: get to the, the 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 last part of the opinion, which I thought yep. was really fun. Yeah. Which is N- so- fun for
1: us, not fun for the lawyer who,
0: not the losing it's lawyer, about. Yeah. not the. I don't know the losing lawyer. If you're listening, I'm sorry, but... The Court of Appeal said that the co decision came down in, uh, I guess, in, in August of 2019, and they heard nothing from counsel. So, the first cautionary tale here is that if a case comes down that is directly on point or even tangentially on point with your case, particularly from the California Supreme Court, you have a duty of candor to advise the Court of Appeal. They're not just supposed to search it out and find it themselves. Now, as a side note, the plaintiff, I guess, didn't bring the case up, but the Court of Appeal does. Go ahead and send a letter, which you'll get from time to time if you do enough appellate work. Yeah, and that letter was addressed co. And we want to know why in your opening brief you omitted 38 of the 49 lines in the actual arbitration agreement. So apparently the associate showed up, which first there is a warning sign that the law firm sent an associate. It's like, what's that saying about sending you know a lamb to the to the wolves? You don't know. To the wolves? I don't know wolves 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 okay so they sent they sent this guy up there who had no involvement with the case didn't write they the they threw brave. him to the
1: wolves that's the same yeah not a lamb to the wolves that's that, that makes sense i guess but that's not the saying. okay yeah thank you thank yeah. you for but anyway so what is the, what is, the, what is the, it's okay you know my mother you would have done it to, to yourself you would have done it to yourself i'm sorry to your mother i'm so, sorry that she had to deal with you uh so what what happens when the associate shows up? shows up and field? says,
0: well, I didn't write the brief. It's not my brief. The guy who wrote it's no longer at our firm. And then when he was pressed on the issues, he said he had not even read the footnote that they were specifically directing him to. And then it kind of goes on from there to say he didn't address Co, didn't have anything to say about Co, And the court, the court says it's difficult to imagine a more obvious violation of the rules of professional conduct than a, r- refusing to be able to address or explain a case which is directly adverse, such as Co. So kind of something to keep in mind. Yeah, you don't want to be I that I think that guy. was a
1: response to him saying uh, when they asked him about Coe, he said he didn't want to talk about Coe because that case was different. different. And they found that that was a lie for him to say Coe is different. The only thing not different honest. about it's Coe in this
0: case is that the plaintiff's name in Coe it was, was Coe. Coe, and the plaintiff's name here was Davis. Davis. But other than that, it was pretty much the same. Yeah. So obviously we had some fun with this today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed listening to these. Uh Sean, tell them where they can find us.
1: They can find us online at kbklawyers.com and we put on seminars and we do other fun stuff. So you can keep up, keep up with us from our website and on social media. And, um, I can give you Brian's cell phone number if you contact me nope. so you can voice your concerns and complaints with him directly. Um, but anyway, thank you for tuning in and, uh, hope to see you next time.